1878, a stowaway sneaks into Memphis and murders over 20,000 people with deadly accurate poisonings. No one can see or predict this killer's movements or choice of next victims. Nothing seems to bar his entry or save anyone from an agonizing death once the killer has marked them. Civil authorities are completely mystified and powerless, and as the bodies pile up, panic, chaos, and criminality overtake the city of Memphis as every reasonable citizen with means to do so competes to get away. They stop their haphazard flight only to name their killer. They called him Yellowjack, tonight on Ominous and Grim. I'm Mr. Ominous. And I'm Dr. Grimm, covering shocking histories and darkest mystery. From the undeniable facts to personal experience, our channel covers all things ominous and grim. I'm Dr. Grimm, and tonight's dark medical history is, as you may have already guessed, a grim recitation of a nightmare plague. A plague that cannot be predicted, stopped, or escaped in any orderly fashion, leading to a triple kind of horror. The first dimension of this triple horror is, of course, the mounting tide of death from an invisible serial killer whose rapidly spreading tendrils seem to strike everywhere without discernible rhyme or reason. The second dimension is the realization in such a situation that you are on your own as the civil authorities offer only clearly incorrect official theories and bogus remedies to cover their own inadequacy. The final dimension of horror is the consequence of the first two, as waves of primal chaos and fear overtake the surviving healthy populace, leading to a complete breakdown of civil society as everyone competes in novel ways to leave each other behind, or worse, to take advantage of newly opened criminal opportunities. In our own age of global pandemics, the story of Yellowjack in 1878 Memphis is particularly timely as a reminder of exactly why plague of which Yellow Jack is an excellent specimen, is crowned as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, a story that is not limited to ancient history or even 150 years ago, but can occur at any time in our own present and future. So stay tuned to hear the full story of Yellow Jack's rampage from the perspective of those who died within it or lived through it, what became of Yellowjack, and of course, whether or not he may come around to visit again. If you're a fan of shocking history and dark mystery, you've come to the right place. Find our next episode on your platform by following this podcast. Share it with a friend and give us a review. 
Join a community of avid listeners at ominousandgrim.com for bonus content and benefits. That's O-M-I-N-O-U-S-A-N-D-G-R-Y-M-M dot com. And now, back to our story. The city is Memphis, Tennessee, in the sweltering summer of 1878, a season where a river of pleasant southern daydreams became terrifying nightmares that no one had the power or knowledge to stop. In this year of 1878, Memphis, Tennessee is a bustling city. It's early summer. Temperatures have begun to rise well into the 90s. Memphis is a port city sitting atop cliffs overlooking the Mississippi River that winds like a giant snake down to the Gulf of Mexico. Boats of all kinds crowd these wide waters, delivering cargo or loading it into an empty ship for export. The muddy water of the river sparkles in the sunlight as travelers come and go from the docks of Memphis. Porters carry the luggage of the rich, while everyone else must transport their own. You can hear the workers shouting from the rough wooden docks. As they labor, their bare backs glisten with the sweat under the summer sun. Quite often, the piercing shriek of a steamboat whistle cuts through all other sounds, and when it dies away on the breeze, the clippity-clop of horses' hooves can be heard nearby. Crowds of multiracial people throng the streets of this port city, people working their trades and traveling for their professions. Women sweep by in long, fancy skirts, ruffles trailing in the dust. The back of their skirts drape over a large bustle. Veils cover some faces, protecting delicate skin from the ravages of sun and dirt. Gentlemen tip their tall hats to the well-dressed ladies as they pass. They ignore the other females. Loud and hearty laughter spills from the interior of a nearby saloon, and the sound of glass shattering. More loud laughter and lots of swearing. A man stumbles drunkenly through the door and across the street. Here on Main Street, the powerful smell of horse manure and sewage makes one's nose wrinkle with disgust. Puddles of mud are ever-present, stretching across the middle of the street from last night's rain. People and horses carelessly splash through them, sending sprays of muddy water in all directions. Watch yourself, or your expensive new suit or dress will be ruined by a rain of mud. Just an average summer day in Memphis. Or is it? No one walking the streets, or drinking in the saloon, or working on the docks, had the slightest idea that a ship's crew member had just died of the dreaded yellow fever or yellow jack. The great plague of 1878 had just begun in silence. Yellow Jack was on the move across the city, and before he finished, over 5,000 within the city limits would lie dead. They called the fearful yellow fever Yellow Jack. Quarantine flags flown at the time were called the Yellow Jack flag, and so the name stuck. Yellow Jack usually appeared early in the spring, down south in the Caribbean islands. This year, the deadly fever struck the populace of Cuba hard and fast as a lightning bolt. The doctor called out to the ship, 
thought at first that malaria had made the sailor sick, but he was gravely mistaken in his diagnosis. Over the next few days, more of the crew members would begin to show symptoms, and all would die. After a month and a half had passed, all of the crew and their family members were sick, and the rest, they say, is history. The fever began to spread into the port city of Memphis. The authorities thought Yellowjack came from infected ship's crews that sailed up from the Caribbean. They put into port, had a few drinks in the saloon, kissed a few women, and then sailed away again, leaving behind many townspeople exposed to the sickness to die afterwards. When a ship or boat arrived with sick crewmen, the authorities tried quarantine, flying the ominous yellow flag to warn others away. Yet that did not work with the yellow fever. No one could figure out how the disease managed to make it to shore when the captain and crew did not. Most doctors thought Yellowjack was the spawn of dirty conditions in city streets and alleyways. Rotten garbage, fish heads and butchered animal entrails, human waste, even cooking scraps and roadkill all produced a perfect breeding ground for the yellow fever, or so it was believed. All it took was the brutal heat and humidity of a southern summer added to this mix of decay and maggot-infested filth, and a fresh plague was born. And Yellowjack is a truly hideous way to die. First, a high fever strikes its victim suddenly, out of the blue. Then comes a throbbing headache, extreme dizziness making it hard to stand. Then comes a violent chill with shaking and trembling. A burning pain starts eating away at the base of the skull and claws its way very painfully down the spine. You may become paralyzed at this point, not able to move your arms or legs. The skin and eyes turn a sickly yellowish green as the disease gnaws away at the liver. Nausea chokes the throat. After a week, you may feel better, or you may not. The second stage of the disease is more deadly. The fever mounts higher and higher until you feel like you are burning up inside. Because the pain is so agonizing, sleeping and eating become impossible. Blood pours like a bright red river from the nose and gums. All you can do is toss and turn on your bed and moan. The bleeding continues. You can feel your internal organs on fire, burning to ash. You pass feces black with congealed blood. Black blood spews uncontrollably from your mouth. You can no longer urinate. Your tongue is black, lips swollen. A great feeling of lethargy steals over your body and you cannot move. Then comes the coma, and finally, and perhaps mercifully, death. In 1878, the only remedies doctors had for the yellow fever was quinine, usually used for the treatment of malaria. They also had carbolic acid, but that was not a cure, that was an antiseptic. Doctors also applied leeches to the skin for bloodletting. Yes, they still leached in 1878, 
or simply cut open a vein, supposedly to let out the impurities that made the patient sick. People believed burning tar or sulfur would keep away Old Yellowjack. So in many places, the officials recommended that the stink from pots of burning tar or sulfur clouding the air might help. Some used lime mixed with water to spray into the air to kill the yellow fever germs. The government even fired off guns and cannons to kill the germs floating in the air. But nothing seemed to slow the progression of the deadly fever. Besides, bloodletting was just quackery that actually weakened a patient instead of healing them. Yellowjack victims have a distinctive odor, which is very strong and offensive. Some say it smells just like rotten meat, while others describe it as a rotten smell, but with an underlying sweet scent. A nasty combination that is totally disgusting and unforgettable to those cursed to smell it. This sweetly rotten smell settled over the entire city of Memphis like a fog, and behind the smell death came crawling. When Yellow Jack began to sweep through the city of Memphis, the people totally panicked as nothing seemed to stop it. Rightfully so, no one wanted to die in such a horrible death. Anyone who could afford to packed their bags, their children, and left the city as fast as possible. Some went to pass the summer with relatives living in areas away from the waterfront. Fleeing citizens packed tightly into all available railroad cars. Some desperate men then forced their way into overcrowded trains, threatening to kill with a gun or sharp knife, forcing women and children out of their way so that they might escape. Other men, even more daring, climbed to the roof of the trains and rode out of town that way. Terrified people thronged the docks on the river. They crowded onto any available thing that would float, dragging their children and belongings with them. People feared Yellowjack so much that some terrified folks scrambled out of their houses, leaving fires burning and food cooking. Some even left windows or doors open or unlocked in their haste to escape the Yellow Death. Some people lacked the funds to travel by boat or train, and they set out walking, aiming to put as much distance between them and the plague-ridden city as possible. They had no choice but to sleep on the sides of the road and eat whatever food they could forage. Husbands, forced to remain behind for business reasons or to protect property from looters, sent their families away. Wives and children were quickly loaded up and shipped off. In all, approximately 27,000 people successfully left Memphis by early August. These were the lucky ones. When Yellow Jack finished its destruction within the city, in the autumn, over 20,000 people were dead in Memphis, down to New Orleans, and the rest of the Mississippi Valley. However, some of the citizens that left the city were already infected with the yellow fever. Wherever they traveled, the disease followed. Some of the surrounding towns would not let the fleeing people from Memphis enter. Armed men closely guarded the roads into town, determined to keep out the sick or any persons infected with the yellow fever. 
The once busy streets of Memphis were quiet as a cemetery now. No shouts from the docks or steamboat whistles. Dogs and cats had vanished. No ladies in long skirts and hat-tipping gentlemen passing the downtown buildings. Because during the quarantine all trading stopped, food supplies grew scarce and people began to starve. Special efforts had to be made to bring in food, and there was little variety. However silent the city streets, crime ran rampant behind the scenes. Hundreds of thieves broke into deserted houses and stole whatever valuables they could cart away. Some crooks pretended to be doctors or nurses in order to gain access to sick people's homes. Once inside, they looted the place of its valuables. The yellow fever victims lying helpless in their beds could not stop them. Most of the policemen had taken sick or died, leaving no one to control the bandits, so the crooks did as they pleased, squatting in the fine houses of the rich and the comfortable middle class, eating other people's food, drinking their wine. Some of these housebreaking thieves caught the fever and died in the empty houses where they squatted. In the fall, when the homeowners eventually returned, many discovered with shocked surprise a half-decayed corpse stinking up their house like a dead rat. Meanwhile, many of the more honest citizens lay in their houses dead or dying, houses that reeked of tar and sulfur, that still could not drive away the sickly sweet rotten smell of disease and the foul stench of death. Often the doctors and nurses found the walls and floors of houses sprayed with black vomit that resembled coffee grounds from the repeated projectile vomiting that Yellow Jack brought. As the August sun blazed down on the quarantined city, Corpses, putrid with rot and covered in flies, lay in the streets and houses unattended, until the overwhelmed death wagons could find the time to haul them away. The bodies could not be buried fast enough. Coffins were in short supply. Burial teams worked night and day, shoveling the soil, digging trenches to bury the dead in long rows. Due to the common belief that human bodily fluids transmitted the yellow fever, the mosquito bites were completely overlooked as a way that the disease spread. No one understood the stagnant water of the surrounding swamps, and any water left standing provided a way for the mosquitoes to breed and spread disease. And in the 1878 era south, with no air conditioning or window screens, Mosquito bites in the middle of summer were pretty much unavoidable. Something had to be done to control all the crime and protect life and property. City officials recruited black and white men, strong in body and courage, to reinforce the severely weakened police force in their doomed city. The Catholic Church worked tirelessly to bring aid to the sick and dying. They opened convents and other church buildings to use for makeshift hospitals. Nuns scurried back and forth all over the city, trying to help sick mothers and starving children. 
some of them just babies wanting food that was very hard to find. Even the local brothels packed up their elegant furnishings and carpets. These houses were quickly transformed into ad hoc hospitals to nurse the sick. It's worth noting that in 1878, and even today, there is no cure for the dreaded yellow jack. Doctors can only make the patient more comfortable until the disease finally passes. It has since been discovered that yellow fever is not contagious, as the townsfolk in 1878 believed. A person must be bitten by a certain type of mosquito, the Aedes aegypti, carrying the disease in order to get sick. Also, when a non-infected mosquito bites a human or animal already infected with yellow fever, that insect becomes infected and a further carrier of the disease, and so the disease traveled with all those who fled Memphis. This type of mosquito lives in the tropics and can't survive freezing temperatures. So the disease-carrying insects must travel northward on ships from the Caribbean islands. Once on the ships, the female mosquitoes bite the crew, making them sick with yellow fever. Then the female lays hundreds of eggs in the freshwater barrels on board. This is how Yellow Jack actually was a stowaway on a barrel and made its way into Memphis. Once the ships dock in a southern port during the heat of summer, the sneaky mosquitoes travel ashore with the crew or in the water barrels. This is how the disease went ashore and the captain and crew never left the ship. Once ashore, the female mosquitoes again bite other humans, infecting them, laying more eggs in pools of stagnant water or still bodies of water such as canals or drainage ditches or the ever-present muddy ponds on the main streets. Soon, clouds of the insects, ravenous for human blood, descend on the city's population, spreading the yellowjack fever like wildfire. When autumn finally arrives, and with it much cooler weather, the yellow fever-carrying mosquitoes die and the deadly fever vanishes. The only way it will return is if more ships bring more Caribbean mosquitoes into port during the hot summer weather. Once the life cycle of the mosquito and the yellow fever was fully understood, long after 1878, the port cities of the South were able to take steps to prevent the colonization of the yellow fever mosquito. Drainage of standing water and better methods for keeping the city clear of standing water helped tremendously. When cool autumn weather arrived that year of 1878, only then the townsfolk returned to the city of Memphis. Life began again, and the people carried on as best they could. But who could forget how Yellow Jack wiped out entire families? Who could overlook that sad, empty place at the table where a loved one once sat? Who could not remember the laughter of the little children and the breathy chatter of the pretty girls and the handsome smiles of young men, all victims of the murderer Yellow Jack, mothers and fathers, grandparents, aunts and uncles, good friends. They now all slept in shallow graves, hastily dug by moonlight or under a blazing sun. Yes, 
Memphis bore its scars bravely ever after, but it was forever after scarred. If you've enjoyed this episode of Ominous and Grim and want more shocking history and dark mystery, don't forget to follow this podcast, share the episode with your friends, and review us on your favorite platform. Finally, sign up at ominousandgrim.com for members-only benefits. That's O-M-I-N-O-U-S-A-N-D-G-R-Y-M-M.com. And until next episode, be sure to look behind you. Mm-hmm.